0: Welcome to Bitches on Comics.
1: I am your host, Essie Flenor, and I'm here today with your other host. My name is Sarah Century, as longtime listeners will know. <laughs> <laughs> longtime listener. I thought you were going to say you were a longtime listener, and I was like, that is technically correct, but also you're mostly a host. <laughs> I'm going to say that I've listened to this podcast perhaps more than anybody else. Um <laughs> I am, I am, the am biggest our biggest fan. fan. <laughs> yes, all of those clicks, all of those listens, all of those follows on Twitter.
0: I'm downloading us on every electronic I have. Yes. I'm not actually, but I probably should do that. Yes. Get, those, get those downloads up by five every week. And we are so pumped because today we have a very special guest, Megan Cubed. Hi, Megan. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure,
2: our journey to get to this point. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you have the honor, uh, the great honor of being one of our most rescheduled technical issues happened the whole time. Yes, I think the other one was Stan Stanley. <laughs> oh my God, that's right. Stan. <laughs> it was like, oh. I just plain forgot like three times in a row. Um, but then like we had the conversation and it was like truly one of our best interviews ever. So bar pretty high. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll, I'll bear that in mind and I'll try to uh, you know live up to all hype. Dazzle, you're gonna dazzle. It turned into like an old timey Hollywood producer there for about 30 seconds, but um I'm back now.
2: <laughs> Even the old oh, razzle dazzle.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we are into razzle dazzle here at Bitches on Comics. <laughs> I'm trying to think because the way that I believe I discovered your work was by following you on Twitter. And mm-hmm. on Twitter, you are a vocal proponent of your work. You talk about it probably more than most of the people that I follow talk about their work. But I think that this is awesome because I'm constantly seeing artists do this thing where they go like, oh, I'm sorry to like be promoting or like sorry to self promote or like, I'm sorry, I didn't, you know, it's like there's always like an apology or like a prerequisite or something. And I'm just like, don't, you don't have to apologize for this. This is like literally part of what you do. Like, it's okay. So I uh, take a lot of inspiration. I know I've I've seen the comments. Like, I know a lot of people take inspiration from that. So it's that was how, and then I remember following you on Patreon before the great Patreon calling that had to happen whenever I had no more money. Uh, Yes. But it was really great to follow you because you had a lot of great exclusive content. And that's still going, right? The Patreon? Uh, The Patreon, unfortunately, bit the dust in February of this year. um, Oh. Because
2: I post things that Patreon doesn't enjoy. Namely, things of a a monstrously sensual nature. And uh, their payment processors don't like that too much. Uh, I had a few posts threatened and I was like, you know what? We're going to move to the old newsletter you Know, take it from behind a paywall and just bring my goodness to you know the good people of Earth for free. And uh, it I currently post everything you know, like short stories, snippets, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, on my my newsletter, which is uh, makingcubes.substack.com. I will probably eventually move to button down because of Substack's nefarious dealings, but for now, that's where you can find all of my uh, promotional work, um, upcoming projects, uh, short stories, and, and that sort of thing. So um, I do appreciate the shout out for my uh, relentless hustle on the internet, <laughs> my un, like unyielding hustle.
1: <laughs> yes. That is honestly, it's so admirable to me because I've always been this way too. Like I'm a poor person, you know, so I can't mm-hmm. just be hobbying my art. Like I really do need to sell it and like I need to it's like, I haven't pushed this envelope. And it, I don't think you have either, where it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to like, do this work that I don't agree with just to make ends meet or anything like that. But on the other hand, it's a matter of always trying to figure it out, right? Yeah. So that's that's how it is for me as well. And I think a lot of people appreciate it. I think it gets people hype about your characters, honestly. Yeah,
2: um, I'm I'm of the the sort of philosophy that like you have to be your own fandom because literally no one else will do it for you, especially as like a small creator. I, I'm super indie, you know, I started publishing about yikes 10, I'm gonna say 10 years ago. I think it was about nine, 10 years ago. And it was all like super small press indie stuff. And my attempts at, you know, getting an agent and a publisher, et cetera, et cetera, never quite panned out so <laughs> I'm like a you know one person show and even back when I was publishing with like other small presses like I was a one person show which mm-hmm. is just the nature of publishing you know it's just the less budget you have the smaller the operation the more it relies on the author so those first few years like it took me a long time to get to this point the first few years I was very like shy and not not exactly outspoken on social media you know I've had I had like my bouts with like self-doubt like am i doing the right thing am i a good enough author do i deserve a spot you know that, that usual sort of like background track of self-defeating stuff but i learned um early on that no one else is going to stand up for you no one else is going to rip you uh and if you want people to care about your work you have to talk about it like you care about it and give people a reason to care and like I said, I that's why I'm such a firm believer in like hyping my own work. And to to kind of like lean on the idea of like fandom, like I um I did come from like a fandom background. Like I learned to write, you know, it's such a cliche at this point, but you know, I learned to write through fan fiction and I guess inserting myself in so many words into communities that, you know, run different franchises and like Star Trek and Supernatural and Pacific Rim and stuff like that. So I kind of cut my teeth that way and learned to sort of promote better that way. And Yeah, I mean, of course, when you're working with a pre-existing fandom, there's a lot of built-in hype for, you know, it's like if if you're falling in line with something that people, or a read on the characters that people like, like that'll help, whatever. If you're a good writer, that helps. But um, I I think beginning there and and seeing what works and and within fandoms kind of helped me as I moved into like (laughs) my own marketing team, Um, you know, how to talk to people within fandoms and how to sort of, approach things you know in in a way that people who you know enjoy media and enjoy talking about media and enjoy talking about their feelings about media are gonna you know what they can expect from you and what kind of emotional investment you've already made and why that they should also make an emotional investment so yeah um it is feelings-based marketing uh yeah (laughs) vibes vibes vibes-based marketing I, I believe in that strategy a lot but um yeah like I said when I started off publishing 10 years ago I wasn't so good at it but it's just takes time takes dedication takes an unabashed desire to talk about your own characters and how cute they are on the internet which you know (laughs) which i do a lot of so
1: yeah and what else i was gonna say is is that we're in this world of the constantly changing platform too right Mm -hmm. whenever it comes to independent creators because i think for a really long time it was like If you self-publish, you have to print a zine or something. There weren't really a lot of options. Like Mm -hmm. it was just print. So we only had, you know, so many ways that that could pan out. And now it's like almost every creator who does independent work that I know of has to constant, uh, I'm sorry, with the caveat. Every queer creator <laughs> I know yes. that does work, you know, even remotely sexually explicit or like, mm-hmm. you know, even remotely queer, really, there's like a constant need of changing platforms. Be that I have to leave Patreon because of the credit card companies or like mm-hmm. I can't do this fan fiction anymore because like I got to cease and desist or like, mm-hmm. you know, any number of things. And so I think that you mentioning here that like, hey, I'm on Substack now, You know, you're probably going to have to check on that, you know, (laughs) like it might be it might not be the way, you know, like here in a few months. I think that that actually speaks to a much wider issue, right, where it's just like something that a lot of people don't give independent artists credit for in the Internet age is, is that we have to keep leaping from platform to platform even just social media. I started on Facebook. I haven't had a Facebook in like seven years, you know, it's like now I'm on this other thing and like all of that. So even from a promotional stance, you like lose massive amounts of followers, gain massive amounts of followers. And uh, it's just kind of hard to do, you know, there's not like necessarily a super consistent timeline around it. And so I was just wondering, has that been something a that you've grappled with? Because it sounds like you have. And then also, is that something that you consider to be an ongoing challenge in a way that is getting worse? Or do you just think it's been kind of this way this whole time?
2: I feel like it is getting worse because of the nature of we'll just say certain lobbying groups and the single hold that it has on payment processors and banking and censorship on social media platforms and places like Tumblr, you know, that are like, you know, you're lulled into this, like as a creator, like come here, you can be yourself, you can talk about your work, you can connect to people. And then it's like, yeah, but if you like, or too spicy, or like mention a titty, then it, like it's a no go. It's over, you know. <laughs> and then Patreon, that's why I was on Patreon from 2018 to earlier this year for that exact reason that they just decided to roll blatantly queer content blatantly sexual content you know i i consider myself a what i call a monstrous romance author you know all a sexist president my work, and i posted several scenes and, and snippets and short stories on patreon and um it did not go well so a lot of queer creators face lobbying pressures from various like anti-lgbtq groups and religious groups and and all that It's happening on social media, it's happening on places like, it's happened on Tumblr, it's it's been happening on, on Patreon, to just kind of roll all broadly sex yes, especially, you know, for sex workers who are constantly at risk of being like nuked off the internet. But anyone who makes risque or sensual or like just explicitly sexual work and especially explicitly queer sexual work, um, a lot of it in my own experience is that it gets rolled into various forms of criminal activity or perpetuating
1: harm. Like
2: I used to get threats on my Patreon posts that were just even like consensual sex between like adult characters. Enjoy each other's company, let's say. (laughs) You know, everyone's consenting enthusiastically. And that was still rolled into potentially, you know, violent or criminal activity and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, and you're seeing that crackdown on Twitter, which is where I don't even post anything. I just talk about Mm -hmm. my artwork and links get suppressed, things sort of disappear, and you're like, okay, okay, here we are. Um, It is getting worse, but at the same time, the public attention is turning the tide a bit, because now people are aware of these things they're talking about. You have a lot of... I mean, sex workers have been very vocal about the problems that they face on the internet and have been organizing. Obviously, like, recently we had the whole dust-up with OnlyFans, and the only reason that the media attention has been on how it negatively impacts sex workers is because sex workers have been working behind the scenes and organizing for months and years, you know, to try to turn the tide in public opinion. So when i talk about these things, it's like, yes, I create, you know, queer artwork or, you know, queer art, queer content, whatever you really want to call it, that is romantic in nature, um, that is boundary pushing in nature because my, my characters, my romantic uh, heroes and all that are typically monsters, you know, (laughs) some more monsters than others. You know, I'm a queer person who writes sexual sensual work about queer characters and queer monsters. So, you know, I, I am subject to these pressures and these, Worries and these fears. I also understand that, like, I'm still not getting it as bad as, like, a full service sex worker or oh, like sure. a cam girl or anything like that. You know, like they are taking the beating. Um, the best I can do is just try to talk about it in a, in a semi intelligent way when I'm screaming on the internet <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and hopefully bring other people who are in the same boat as me to that, like, conversation. Cause it's like, yes, it affects them. You don't see that just yet, or you're not seeing much of it, but it's coming.
1: A hundred percent. I was going to note that it's such an ongoing thing. Like I do work for Adweek, so I yeah. end up looking at a ton of advertising, and there's whole campaigns that are people being like. Hey, Instagram, like, why did you shut down my business account for two weeks? Like, we already can't advertise. We already can't do this or that. And it'll be something like sex toys, you know, like Mm -hmm. it'll be something that like a picture of a sex toy on a bed and people will get their accounts just shut down. So there's been a lot of people campaigning around it. And that's definitely always has been Very much led by, you know, sex workers for the most part, from what I can tell, because it's like so often on the front lines for so many things that it's Mm -hmm. just like truly unfair in a lot of ways. But then it's also like, yeah, years ago, whenever sex workers were like, hey, gay people, you know, like they're accepting you, but this nope kink at pride conversation is cropping up a lot isn't it (laughs) you know and like all of that kind of stuff where it's like maybe just look at this with like a slightly more discerning eye I guess because I think a lot of times people will go oh well we won this fight or like this is over and then it's like as usual right they don't notice until it's like the knock is on the door or something like that but yeah I, I think it is a much larger conversation right
2: yeah, and it's one of those things where the, the knock on the door doesn't always, you know, read as a threat. You're like, oh, we're just, you know, we're just worried about what's the one I've heard setting a good example. You know, like I've had, I've had some really like uncomfortable experiences on the old social media with people who are like, oh, you know, you 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 write these things, you know, but like you're not setting a good example. It's like for. who? Ooh, I write
1: <laughs> like I, whose kids am I raising right now? Because I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I don't, I don't write
2: YA, you know, like this is all for adults. This is an excellent example for monsters and people who want to fuck them. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I, I try to provide positive representation for monster fuckers,
3: (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's
2: my primary concern, you know, like I just, all, all the cash Laroys of the world who just really want to date a vampire. Like I really just try to hold it down for them. But yeah, you know, it's like, you know, you need to be a positive example. And I'm like, I write romance for adults about adults and it's only marketed to adults, no one, I I block minors when I see them on on the wild, like, what more do you want for me? You know, I, I am constantly telling people I do not write YA, do not put me on YA lists. Like, I've had this problem where I'm like, please don't put me on a news roundup next to like middle grade and YA books. Like, do you mm. see what I write?
1: Isn't that a big part of like what a lot of queer creators are going through right now, though, where it's like the only things that anybody can get published are like YA? <laughs> and yeah. So it's like coming of age YA stories is like it kind of. And I've heard this from a lot of people. Who are just like, yeah, I mean, maybe I want to write like a horror comic sometime, <laughs> like, or maybe I want to write something that's like outside of that realm. So I heard that as well. Um, I don't know if that applies to what you're about to say.
2: Uh, well, no, it, it's it's really true. I, I talk to a lot of different people. I, I kind of sit at a weird crossroads with like prose fiction. And then like, I know a lot of people in games, a lot of people in comics and a lot of different places. So like, I definitely see a lot of people in different sort of niches and mediums who are like, you know, God, dude, sometimes, like you said, I just want to do a horror comic. Sometimes I just want to do something gross. Sometimes I just want to just draw titties all day. Why can't I just draw titties all day? <laughs> you know, because, you know, it's like when, it, it's become this thing and a lot of it in my personal experience I can't speak to like necessarily like comics or film or games or whatever but like in my personal experience like once book Twitter became YA Twitter then it became this whole thing where like every like girl shaped person on the who writes a book or whatever on the internet now writes YA and is now involved in YA discourse and now has opinions on YA and now caters to teenagers and should make safe spaces for teenagers and I'm sitting there Writing sex scenes about like Gorkin Milf and her girlfriend, and it's like I don't want to see a teenager. Like I don't want to think about him. <laughs> I don't want to acknowledge their existence. They better not be <laughs> buying my books because their parents should know what their children are doing. <laughs> you know, and it just yeah, there's a lot of a lot of overlap. Part of it is like publishing itself because so much stuff gets. Again, if it has, like, supernatural elements or is, again, written by a woman or has, like, fantasy elements or whatever, like, it tends to get, like, shelved in YA, even if it's adult fiction. So that's part of it, too. That doesn't apply to me so much, necessarily, because I'm, like, super indie, but... Anyone I know with a book deal has complained about that for years. They're like, I write books for adults. They're for adults, they're about adults, whatever. And then like everyone starts screaming at me that like, this isn't YA because this has like blood and war and a titty in it. And it's like, okay, but like I told y'all it was an adult book, you know? But yeah, so there's an overlap of like the marketing issue. There's the overlap of like the social media sort of like perception issue.
1: Like straight up respectability politics, right? Because it's such a thing of like, I don't think that a lot of straight authors generally have to navigate this. I might be wrong. See, I can be like, well, I've seen mostly and it's like, well, you mostly follow queer people. So maybe that's why you think that. (laughs) But like, yeah, once again, it's like, it's okay, but I never want to see it still in a weird way. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's fine if
2: you don't show it to me. And it's like, well, don't follow me on Twitter because I'm going to show it to you. But um I can't say for sure outside of some of those conversations, but I definitely get the impression that you're if you're like an open queer person or you write a lot of queer characters and whether or not you are doing super adult or mature or like, you know, explicit work of any kind, like the expectations for you to be presentable and PG-13 and safe for work are at least like in the romance space that I've personally seen, obviously you will always have pearl-clutching, fundy moms who are like, oh, no, a lady can't experience an orgasm. These books are for the devil. I mean, you always have that, like, following around romance writers. You've had it for decades, and you will have it probably until the, you know, death of the universe. But in my personal experience and the conversations that I'm having with, you know, queer creators of all types, of all genres and niches and mediums, you know, both indie and even, like, you know, traditionally published or whatever, is that, like, yeah, the respectability politics are crushing, because you're supposed to be neat, clean, tidy, a consummate role model for teens. And you're supposed to usher in a new age for queer youth and, and acceptance. And it's like, nah, man, sometimes you just want to ride a vampire.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I can't or do or like it. <laughs> a bisexual person who makes bad choices. Like, uh, yes. ooh, what a monster I am. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I hear you on that. And I think there's another dimension here that you've both sort of danced near, but haven't, like... Addressed head on and tell me if I'm wrong is that so often the queer stories that do well in publishing are written by straight people. And if queer people want to write narratives that do well, and I mean, you know, make money, I've heard a lot of queer authors who are established say, Yeah, I wrote a straight book. I wrote a straight book so that I could make a bestseller list. I wrote a straight book so that I could make money and show them that I could make money. So now I can write other books. And it's, You know, that's those people are also in an echelon of publishing that is a rarity in itself. So what they're facing is a particular kind of oppression. But it it's part of this bigger conversation that we're having around what does it mean to be a queer creator in an environment that wants to put you into little boxes that, like Sarah said, not all authors are having to put themselves in, you know? Mm -hmm. Like as queer people, we must conform in ways that, you know, straight people don't have to. And, you know, especially in Is that white men, (laughs) you know, like, hmm, they sure get to write a lot of interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, like, that is true, too. The, the work that is published and is promoted, like, obviously you have a lot of, like, like the YA space, too. Um, you have a lot of, like, breakout, like, queer and trans authors, you know, who are who are marketed and who do do well. And, you know, people support them and they win awards and make a lot of money. And that's, that's great. Um, but there are a lot of people who are closeted because the double-edged sword of, like, yes, you can be this new fresh queer voice, but then like, then you will also be a target because, you know, you have the marketing problem, the fandom problem of the expectations of, of purity and et cetera, et cetera, responsibility, you know, and then of course, if you don't disclose, then if you happen to write, like you said, a bisexual person who makes mistakes or has like a bad time or gives bad vibes or whatever, you know, then it's like, well, then here's this horrible, horrible straight person who's writing this horrible representation. And if they want any quarter in the public discourse then they need to out themselves immediately, regardless of whether or not they are out anywhere in their lives or they ever chose or ever like planned to out themselves in their own career. So yeah, it's a nasty time to, to, to be alive.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. well, and it makes sense that you, and it sounds like out of necessity, so I don't want to make it too simplistic but it makes sense that you've, you've pivoted into this indie direction mm-hmm. and you know I didn't think our conversation would go here but I'm having the best time hearing you talk about this mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more for our audience I think we have a lot of listeners who are creatives in some sense or another how do you know it's the right time to switch toward a more independent or self-publishing route and what do you think are some of the key things they need to know as as they do so
2: for me personally, uh, like I said at, at the top of the show, like I, I did the whole like indie swell press thing for a really long time. I published two books that way. Uh, it just wasn't a good world. wasn't something I was like happy with. I met some good people on the way, but it's a tough world. For me, it was the lack of creative and marketing control, I guess if that makes sense. It's kind of like, you know, I have a very specific vision for like my work and how I promote myself and how I, I talk about these things. With the last book that I, that I published, um, I did the queried editors and queried agents and did the whole thing. I did pitch wars and I did, I did a bunch of things for, for a while and got some really good feedback and then got some really baffling feedback. But what I came up against for me personally was that my work falls between all the cracks, right? For like, marketing checklist (laughs) you know it it didn't fall into any neat category and the work that I do like I said is like I I call it monsters romance it's blend of like horror and romance it's like super you know paranormal romance but with you know I think maybe more themes than you know you're sort of like Average, or I think what people think of like a page turner romance, you know. So there's a lot of horror elements. There's a lot of, at least my books, like I try to work in social critique and those sort of things. So when I pitched it as like sci fi fantasy horror, kind of, it didn't hit like the word count for what was acceptable for an adult fiction book. My word count was too low. You know, it's like, yeah, the themes are great. The characters are great. It's really voicey. It's just like, yeah, we can't sell this to adults. You can either tack on 20 or 30,000 more words and some other elements and maybe tone the sex stuff down a little we'll see and then maybe we can try it again and I was just like I that's not gonna work so when I pitched it to like romance editors and publishers it was like this is all great but like there's too much plot and there are too many themes and it doesn't follow like the neat A to B like romance storyline and so it was like okay it's not adult enough for adults <laughs> and is too much book for romance and I'm not trying to like slander romance obviously I, I just it was it was just an interesting like note to get where it's like ah oh, there's too much plot here I'm like okay <laughs> so like for me it was just like I, I fell in between the cracks of, of so many genres so that was like okay I have to put this out myself you know, I have plans for, like, the the Southern Gothic series, which is, like, my, the little child who lives in my brain, and I think about it every day, is, like, going to be seven or eight books. You know, that's my plan. That's what I have, like, accounted for in my ever-growing list or a pile of, you know, notebooks that I write all of my books in. But, like, no one is going to give me an eight-book deal. No one is going to do that. No one is going to even give me a three-book deal. They're like, either this works or it doesn't. So, the sort of, like, the lack of control over like the content of my work if I wanted to sell it you know because if I wanted to pitch this book to publishers it was like oh we're gonna have to make all these changes I'm like that's not that's not possible to me because I'm like then I would have written that book you know and I didn't I wrote this book instead so like I said, for me, the impetus of it was just that I fell between so many cracks that is, I couldn't, I couldn't come out of it, and still like attempt to have a book deal or attempt to, you know, go with a small press because I just did not hit any of those like checklists. And like I said before, about that's creative control, you know, that that overarching control, like. Where I want the story to go, the elements of the story—you know, obviously I love horror, I love romance. Those things are like married in these in these books, and eh, that was like that was going to be a no go. It had to fall on one side or the other. And then again, in terms of marketing, it was like like I said before about "Ah, being a good role model, (laughs) you know, that sort of thing. You're a little outspoken on social media, you know, that sort of thing. So it was just there was a lot of reasons where I'm like I'm not going to tone my work down. I'm not going to tone myself down. I've been writing and publishing for so long that it's like, you know, I, I know I'm good at it. And I know that people respond to my work. So I can rewrite the book and rewrite the book and rewrite the book and, and keep pitching to, to agents and keep pitching to editors and stuff. I was like, Or I could just put out the book that I have, you know, because it's like, I, I believe in it. I'd had a lot of success with like the short stories I had released around the, the universe of the book for the last, you know, three years or so. And it's like, I, people already love these characters. You know, they already love the world that I've built. You know, they followed me on Patreon. They followed my newsletter. You know, they've read the stuff that I published, you know, myself. So I was like, I can sit here and try to force this book into any number of molds really and try to get it published or, you know, I can just do it myself and give it to the audience that's already there. That was my decision. I think everyone kind of comes to that point in their own way. Be it the kind of work that they write, uh, how fast they write, because that's another issue too is that like mainstream publishing, traditional publishing wants you to like write like three books a year, four books a year. And depending on your genre, you know, it is a brutal breakneck pace that you have to, you know, keep up with. And I'm like, I'm not writing fast enough in any genre that I was going to try to like slot myself into to keep up with that kind of workload. Cause you know, obviously I have a day job, otherwise I couldn't fund any of this stuff, but you know, your, your health and your life work balance figures into the decision. For me anyway, you know, how much work you can even reasonably accomplish in a year. Some people can write at a breakneck speed and that's great. You know, God bless them, but that's not me. So yeah, like I said, work, work, life balance, creative control, marketing control. There's uh, the content. There's just a lot that kind of plays into it. I think everyone reaches that point in their own time. But if you really believe in what you're doing and you've already built up an audience even a fairly small one, it's getting cheaper and easier all the time to put your work out by yourself. Or even if you work with like a, like small publishing co ops, crop up all the time. Uh, I know a couple of people who who run some, and yeah, I mean, I am a firm believer that like you will release the work how it should be released, however long it takes. Now, if you're the kind of person who absolutely has to have a traditional publishing book deal, then then work on that. And if you're like me and you don't, then don't stress out over it because, you know, life finds a way and soda books. So
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking too that some of the best advice I ever got was just essentially around just not being too precious about stuff uh, and being kind of like, yeah, everything has the audience that it has. So I think a lot of times I used to be a musician and so you would play shows and some of them, there'd be a lot of people and some of them, there wouldn't be that many people. Mm-hmm. And You know, people would have to have like a whole here's why maybe or something, you know, and Mm -hmm. I just always felt like it was a little rude to the audience that did show up because it's like, well, there were still people here. So one of my friends once said something along the lines of. Uh, Every show has the audience that was meant to be there because you can't really negotiate with it once it's said and done, right? So I always thought that that was a really important thing because I do think a lot of people will kind of psych themselves out and be like, well, nobody cares or like not enough people care. And it's just like, well, why don't you stop worrying about that? Let people care if they're going to, you know, like I think that whenever you say something like, well, nobody cares, then it's Mm -hmm. just like that can't help but be a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I was picking up some themes of that and just kind of thinking about how all of the best advice I've ever gotten, regardless of anything, like regardless of like if tomorrow I was going to sign a big old book deal or something like that and get a bunch of money, it would have to be the same idea of, well, don't get too precious about yourself because God knows what's going to happen after that right so i don't know i was wondering if does that ring true to you as well
2: no definitely because yeah like you said like you can do the very best you can every single time and you will plateau at the exact amount of readers you know what i mean like that's as many people who are going to read that book and you can do whatever harebrained scheme you come up with to promote that book and it's just it's just it's going to reach that many people you know and for me, it's like I, I know that I'm a niche writer. I know that I've carved out a, a readership like by hook or by crook, you know, in my doing my time through different like things that I've done. And the way that I kind of frame my philosophy is that you're either on the bus, you know, get on the bus or get run over like that's it. Like we're going. I'm going. No one has figured out a way to stop me. (laughs) Publishing tried not to give me a book deal. It didn't work because I just decided to publish the book myself. And you know, and then that's kind of just my my sort of philosophy on that. It's like, I'm gonna do this one way or the other. You can either get on board or not. And that's kind of just how you have to look at it, you know. And then everything when it comes to releasing your work is is kind of a negotiation on, on like of your own terms as well, because yeah, you could be like, I absolutely have to have a print run and I have to sell copies at bookstores and I have to do all this stuff. It's like, okay, but if you're not sure if you've built an audience, you can just release an ebook first and, you know, make some of that money back that you spent on editing or your cover or, you know, whatever, or any sort of like marketing plan that you might have, you know, or ads you've taken out, you know, whatever you spent in the production and marketing process. If you release it as an ebook, get some of that money back. And then you can put that towards doing a little print run. If you're worried that you're going to end up with a, a stack of unsold books then just do ebooks, just do PDFs. If you don't want to mess with Amazon, then just do PDFs and sell them on Gumroad. Like there's so many things that you can do. And you can do super limited runs of things like, you know, whatever, it's, it's totally fine. And then if you're unhappy with it, You can just delist it, pretend it never happened. So, you know, if pseudonyms exist for a reason, if you ever just want to try something, you know, it's like if you limit yourself to this is what an artist is or this is what an author is, then like, yeah, yeah, like you said, don't be precious because then you're never going to get the work out. But then also, like, a lot of things have started off as ebooks. A lot of my work has started off as, as ebooks only. And then because people really cared about it, like I did a print on demand. So, you know, it, it just kind of depends on the circumstances, how much time, money, etc, etc, you're able to put into something, but then also just kind of letting it go and being like, well, I'm going to do this and it's going to reach its audience. It's going to have the impact that it's going to have. And then I just write the next book and I keep on going.
1: So <laughs> I was going to say, whenever you brought this up, was that if some of my like, whenever I was 20, 25, I was doing a bunch of Persians that were basically just about sad breakups, which oh my God. <laughs> then I then I evolved into who I am today, of course, who just writes other sad allegory. But, um, <laughs> naturally, naturally. <laughs> it's a real progression as an artist. You know? I was like, if a single one of those zines resurfaces, this Sarah Century identity is gone. Like, I am becoming a different person. I am changing my name, like, because <laughs> they're embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but like, it's okay for it to be embarrassing in the beginning, right? Nobody starts out great, great. We act as if, like, there's, you know, the people who are like, oh, I, this person was only 22 when they wrote this amazing book. And it's like, yeah, but most writers aren't 22 when they write their first amazing book, right? Like, yeah. And that writer, like, fizzled out super fast, right? Which is always a, a threat, you know, I <laughs> think when when you're young, young, and people are just like, you're a genius. It's like, well... You're probably going to believe them and then <laughs> it's all over for you. But yeah, I don't know. I was kind of thinking about all of that and just like how how our paths kind of change over time as well. Yeah. And so I think that independent publishing is something, you know, that nobody should be scoffing at. But I think it also has a huge background background. Whenever you're looking at queer creators who, Mm -hmm. because it's like, I mean, our stuff was like illegal for a long old time. Oh, yeah. You couldn't send it in the mail. So like it was illegal. If like you were doing queer publications, you had to like deliver them by hand, essentially. And even then you might get arrested for it. Many of the major obscenity trials have been either queer works were in them or you know whatever so i think that there's something to be said too just for like the long history of queer creators that have had to self publish and mm-hmm. that we remember them as being these you know iconic figures yeah exactly it's like where do we draw
2: the line from like ah this person is a trailblazer look at everything they did they published this in a basement and handed it out to people in pamphlets and this is art now you know this is an historical document and then now it's like oh well this is just self-published trash and it's like "Mm -hmm." but like you can't say that it's self-published trash when there are still massive structural barriers to people (laughs) attempting to have any kind of career and let alone like just feed themselves based on their own creative work and yeah there's a certain sense of just like kind of just saying fuck it and honoring that that sort of that past you know the fact that like I I always joke about my own work is just being like pulp it's pulp fiction I follow a lot of um like social media accounts that like document Pulp novels, especially like lesbian pulp novels, and and go through the history of all of them, and it, it's it's super interesting stuff. when you look at the censorship uh, of the day and how people managed to skirt it through pseudonyms and deploying certain tropes to make sure that like you know that's where like barrier gays kind of came from because they could not have a happy ending. They could have mm-hmm. they, you could tell a really fascinating, compelling story, but then someone had to die or go back to their husband or whatever.
1: Right, and it was like by you know, like, hey, we're really cheap, like, supposedly lowbrow entertainment. So don't worry about this too much, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: You know, and and so like, I, I'm interested in the history of like, pulp fiction and like, you know, pulp novels and like, you know, cheapo, like, horror and like, weird comics from like, you know, back in the day, you know, before the Comics Code Authority and all that stuff, you know. And I look back on that stuff very fondly, like, I'm very deeply interested in that stuff and reverent of that stuff. And I consider that stuff like peer to me. I I, I consider myself closer to the cheapo lesbian my wife was a teenage milf or whatever you know novel from 1965 than like did <laughs> like a best-selling romance novel or, or horror novel out today like i think that is more of like what i'm setting out to do and closer to what what i can feasibly accomplish you know dealing with censorship and respectability and whatever of, of my own, of my own day and of, of my own daily life on the internet you know so yeah i, I think it's good to sort of like uh, look back on history with like some perspective like yeah I, I'm still not I'm, I'm not having to like turn this out as like a pamphlet and, <laughs> and share it uh, and like in a club you know I'm, I'm doing pretty good I can sell it on Amazon at least for this week at time of recording next week we'll see but you know they threaten me sometimes but yeah you know I, and I think it's good to look back on that stuff with with reverence and know the circumstances of its publication and, and know the stories of the people who made it and understand that you know You're not that far off. You know, don't get precious. (laughs) You ain't special.
3: (laughs) As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, listeners. Do you like the pod? Do you like our general vibe? Do you want to see us eat meals, survive, thrive in the world, come back with the podcast be cool all the time, make money, get cars. I don't know. At that point, I was just... Buy new shoes. Buy new shoes, get a pony,
1: invest in Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go ahead and argue with that last one. But otherwise, (laughs) I am there with you. I'm
0: not going to invest in Bitcoin. But hey, if you want to see us, you know, be financially soluble... (laughs) Please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. We have tons of content there. We have, I think it's like a hundred back episodes. So those are things that range from talking about individual independent comics that we like, as, you know, each of us on our own together, to talking about Why Nona Earp, why we loved it so much. Yes, we had a bonus episode about it before. We had a mainstream episode about it. Who could say why? Why not? We have our cage match episodes, which are just so wild. We just compare two Nicolas Cage films and then decide which is cagier, and it's probably the highlight of my life, if I'm being <laughs> honest. We also have our Intoxicated Comics special that we do, where we get a little bit woo-hoo, and then talk about weird comics. Sometimes we have a great time, and sometimes we're like, what have we done? <laughs> and either way, it's pretty funny. We also have exclusive interviews with smaller creators, all kinds of different stuff. We basically use our patreon as an opportunity to put more good comics info out there oh my goodness a very pretty bird just landed outside my window
1: oh in this spot we got to talk about this bird all right let's get through it this bird has a little red head oh it flew away beautiful
0: little bird thank you bird so yeah you know come join us on patreon so i can look at more birds we're at patreon.com slash bitches on comics you gotta spell it out you can't go to patreon.com and then search us because we're i don't know Bitches. We curse too much. Some, some, they're like, you sound like some real bitches, so we're not gonna make you searchable. And we were like, uh, fair, fair, harsh but fair. Yeah, harsh, I deserve that. Fair. I deserve it. Speaking of fuck it, let's talk about your books. All let's right. talk about this incredible world you've created. Why don't you give us our our listeners just sort of a high level what's the world tell us about cash and dorian very exciting stuff i want to hear it all
2: all right so the, the southern gothic series got its start as a short story in the romance comics and prose anthology uh, organized by alex de um twisted romance and uh i was in the first issue with some really like incredibly talented people that that whole that whole anthology series was is really good
1: I have it right on my bookshelf. It's literally like looking right back at me right now. So <laughs> it's like,
2: oh, there it is. It's where it all began. Uh, yeah, I originally had this idea for a monster hunting sort of romance. You know, I I had spent many years and written many things uh, about supernatural. And had some very strong feelings about the handling of one Dean Winchester and one Castiel. Huh.
1: I wonder why. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Ah, I could go into a rage right now.
2: (laughs) And I'd been like on the outskirts of that fandom, but I'd written a few interesting things. And. I had fallen out of, of my long infatuation with it. And then as I always do when I get mad at things, I go, fuck it. I'm going to file the serial numbers off this bitch and I'm going to write my own, which is the how I've started every single like novel or story I've ever written. I get mad at something and I'm like, nope, we're going to do it my way.
1: Which is funny though, because isn't that what people always say to to like queer creators? Is be like, well, then create your own. If there isn't that, then like, why are you bothering Marvel? Just create your own, <laughs> and then like, you do it. And, and I just, did. They're like
2: <laughs> And now
1: I have um, nothing to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The short story came about because I
2: was just I had been enamored with like monster hunting fiction for a really long time. I have been like a like a lifelong fan, basically, of like uh, Vampire Hunter D and just a lot of stories in that vein especially from like anime and video games like castle you know castlevania i'm like i love vampire hunting stories i love monster hunting fiction in general and having been burned and feeling very feeling very butthurt about the state of supernatural which has been my favorite show for a really long time i knew an annoying amount of lore uh (laughs) written an annoying amount of things that can still be found on archive of our own and live journal if you know where to look and i was just like i want to write a monster hunting story for like my whole life my my trope of tropes and it's it was true of supernatural it's true of like my freaking obsession with the neon genesis evangelion is it like i love the idea of a otherworldly or supernatural character of some kind who just comes down from on high or from the cave, or like whatever, wherever they happen to come from, and just loves a deeply flawed and stupid human with all of their heart. Fucking Dean. Fucking, Fucking Dean. Dean. Fucking Dean, man. Like, I and that's all he
0: needs, right? That's all he needs. What he needs is to let himself be loved by Castiel. Exactly. I have very strong feelings. I know we both do.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. I, I wrote a whole ass book about it. So <laughs> a whole ass book and about 30 short stories. So let me tell you. Um, yeah, so that's like my favorite trope. That's my favorite like romance trope. And I have very strong feelings about like paranormal romance because of that, because it's like, Ah, oh, like, that's fine. But like, ah, this this over here is my favorite. I love the idea of like something otherworldly, eerie, supernatural, something non-human that just loves a stupid broken human. And despite all warning signs, you know, and I was like, I just want to do something with that. And so when Alex approached me for the, uh, the anthology, she was just like, yes, yeah, so you're writing something, right? And I'm like, uh, all I have is a loose idea for a vampire who's very, very bad at being a vampire and who hangs out with a monster hunter and then they hunt monsters together and then they fall in love through hijinks. And she's like, write it. So I did. And it was called Leather and Lace. And the premise of Leather and Lace, both the original short story and the novel, the full length novel that it became is that uh, it follows the very stupid adventures of a goth dipshit vampire by the name of uh, Dorian Vianu who is just a professional fuck-up and tragic backstory, comes from a broken vampire home, has survived by working customer service jobs, low-paying jobs, doing sex work, doing all these things just to, you know, stay off the street. And, you know, one day at his stupid job as a uh, bartender at a vampire bar, because all great stories start off at a vampire bar, A, a hunter, a very attractive hunter from Texas, happens to stroll in, And is hunting one of the vampires there who happens to be part of the vampire mob. And Dorian is immediately smitten with who he comes to know as Cash Leroy. And they become immediate friends when Cash gets his ass beat by the said vampire uh, mafia guy. And Dorian has to save him. And, you know, they just develop this instant attraction and, and also friendship because Cash is like, oh. A good, kind boy who's indebted to Dorian, you know, who's a monster and didn't have to do that for him. And, oh, my God, you know, what a what a kind soul. I will take him under my wing and I'll teach him how to be a monster hunter and all this good sort of like, you know, romantic business. So that's how they meet. That's the germ of the whole, the whole series. And the, both the short story and the book follow Dorian and Cash's misadventures as Dorian gets slightly better over time at hunting monsters under cash's you know tutelage and supervision and their roommates their partners they spend all their time together they finish each other's sentences and and make make fun of each other constantly and you know the sort of like the thematic like crooks of the whole thing is that cash's one true singular hobby is that uh he is obsessed with stevie nicks and he loves karaoke. And all he sings is Stevie Nicks songs in honor of her, who is his favorite. And so they bond over their musical tastes. They bond over, you know, karaoke. They bond over their sorted like, parental issues and, and, and sorted pasts and all that good stuff. And the short story and the novel follow their changing friendship at which becomes a bit of a moonlighting will they won't they situation on the case of monstrous murderous deer, which is sort of a a callback to Hannibal one of my other fandom not so dirty secrets that is also a public secret if you know where to look for the stories (laughs) and yeah so it's this romantic rom-com hijinks about you know a, a swaggery texas monster hunter and his best friend who's a vampire and A dipshit and has an emotional support chihuahua named dominique and you know their various adventures hunting you know murderous were deer and cannibal school teachers and all this good stuff as their friendship becomes more than that and then they navigate the trials and tribulations of, of having a complicated supernatural romance as monster hunters you know Cash hunts monsters professionally. Dorian is a monster who now hunts monsters professionally. And let's just say that, like, the in-laws on either sides will not be thrilled when they find out about this. But, um, yeah, that's kind of the the over, overview of the series uh, and the book, because, like I said, it has a very interesting in comics-adjacent <laughs> origin
0: story uh, in the Twisted Romance anthology, so... Uh, it's amazing. It's so much fun to read too. It's got such great pacing and characterization and I'm disappointed to hear that someone was like your, your romance has too much plot. Uh, <laughs> I personally was like that's part of what makes this so delightful. <laughs> and so, you know, we get stuck in, because of marketing, we get stuck in genre conversations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, marketing has a stranglehold on publishing, and that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. I'm not even saying anything controversial. These no. are facts. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's it's disappointing sometimes that the books that people are really hungry for get buried. Like, I, I wasn't familiar with your work, and... I'm a fan for life. Like, I love this shit. I'm like, give me more cash and Dorian. Give me cash and Dorian every day of the goddamn week. And and what I was curious about, to whatever degree you're comfortable discussing this, Mm -hmm. and if this question isn't appropriate, we can always cut it in post. There's always this conversation about women specifically, and I'm going to put an asterisk there because I know that that's not exactly the whole truth for you, Mm -hmm. about women writing men loving men. Mm -hmm. And... Again, like, I know that you also use they, so I know you have some gender something going on, mm-hmm. which I love, of course, as a non-binary person. But I'm curious how you think about that conversation and how writing Cash and Dorian may or may not be related to your own gender journey.
2: Well, it's a loaded kind of, like, situation with that because I'm, I'm of the mind that, like, anyone can write anything, right? Like, like in the larger cosmic sense like anyone can tell any story what stories are uplifted which are reinforced which are paid for (laughs) which are marketed you know those become the very complicated aspects of that especially when like historically speaking like like we were talking about before so much of like mm or whatever they want to call it like romance you know gay romance is written historically by like yeah you know, straight-ish women you know so you had a lot of men queer men trans people trans men like you know the different sort of like variations of, of people who would want to write these things but like are kind of locked out of the conversation because those are not the kinds of books that are being bought you know you have a lot of like i don't know just like sort of wish fulfillment that that comes with a lot of like more, more standard MM or, or gay romance or whatever, you know, uh, and men loving men. A lot of tropes, some have, you know, carry more damaging baggage than others. So, you know, and I, and I happen to know a lot of people who are super indie or self-published or whatever, you know, who are men who write these kinds of books and write these kinds of romance, and, but they, they've had to because like they've been told by by editors and by uh, by agents that like yeah this is great but like it doesn't hit the tropes we're looking more like this over here which is written by like a straight woman or what we presume to be a straight woman like you know yeah pseudonyms exist for a reason you know but when most of the names on the covers of these books are not men's names it's a very loaded sort of conversation. So I write gay romance, I write lesbian romance, I write various permeations of things. But um, for me personally, I try to come at every story from a place of like, this is not my story. This is a story. And I'm not trying to speak for anyone else or speak for anyone's experiences or speak to any sort of like topical intra-community discussions, you know, like here's a story. Here's the human beings in the story. I'm going to do the best that I can to write humanely and respectfully and get, you know, as many eyes on it as possible before we hit, you know, send to Amazon to make sure that at least people who I guess would feel represented by the characters on the page don't feel uncomfortable or tread upon in any way, you know, or fetishized, you know, any of those things, you know, that like, as long as it reads like a person and, and a person that who may see themselves in that character, Feels, or I should say as many people as possible who can see it <laughs> before I publish uh, feel comfortable with that character and, and think that there's something in there that resonates and like I think I've done my job that was very important to me with cash I'm not a gay half Mexican man so that's well beyond my wheelhouse you know I try to get as many eyes on that as possible and talk to as many people and get feedback from the original short story all the way to the novel and then so When people tell me that like, ah, I love this character. He really resonates with me. I feel like, I feel you do a good job with him. That that feels good to me because it's like, okay, that's the thing that like keeps me awake at night. Like (laughs) I talk a lot of shit on the internet as we, as we know, but like, I never want to hurt anyone intentionally or unintentionally or conjure up baggage. You know, like I don't want to hurt anybody. Like I, I write fun, romantic, very sexy pulp fiction, and I'm not here to you know, heart people. So like, it is important to me as someone who like is outside of that sort of world and who understands to some extent, not fully, but the trials and tribulations of trying to publish that work as someone who is the person being represented on the page. You know, like I understand that a lot of men are locked out of the romance publishing world. And you know, that's, that's a much broader conversation that I'm not prepared to have because I don't, I'm not not in on the marketing meetings and all that (laughs) stuff. (laughs) But um, yeah, so those are the things that that I I try to do. And when people tell me, oh, I love this character, then like, okay, whoo, I'm not a monster. So (laughs) I can sleep at night.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about something along those lines because there is a lot of times as a lesbian, there's so many portrayals of lesbians and, you know, I'd say bisexual women as well that Mm -hmm. are just. So wild and it can be really offensive, Mm -hmm. but I think that it's most offensive when it's just that, right? Like it's most offensive when it's only that kind of creator, like cis white men telling that story, Mm -hmm. always a straight guy or whatever. And that's when it really becomes a huge bummer for me is is that there's not alternatives to the text, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing else beyond that. I think you were mentioning that like a little bit. Yeah, there's times where I think people will be hypercritical towards something and I'm just like, I don't know, I think that this is just like a regular story and he chose like a lesbian character and it's fine, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, honestly, sometimes it's for the best because this might be one of the only like five movies this year, you know, that have that representation. Um, So it, it like, turns into this interesting conversation that's, like, you almost have to take it on a case-by-case basis, but then also, like, the nature of the publishing world is kind of really what makes it difficult to navigate because so often we all get kind of boiled down to, like, whatever is wanted by the publishing company (laughs) at that time in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, so i don't know
2: yeah and then especially with uh with dorian because to to get back to the the previous question um i didn't mean to cut myself off but i did but (laughs) one of the 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 notes that i got (laughs) about dorian who is non-binary by the nature that he comes from a vampire culture that does not perceive binary gender or or sexualities of any kind like the default state for vampires in this universe is pansexual, gender fluid, and polyamorous.
0: So... My people. It's my people. Yeah, so
2: in in this book, I touch a little more on, like, the sort of, like, the vampire world-building in the next one, because it, the next book is very, like, nitty-gritty in, like, vampire culture, because they, like, go back to Devil's Row, you know, Dorian's stomping grounds, and they, they're on a case of, like, a, a missing teenage vampire, and there's a lot of, like, all that stuff. So... I get into like the nitty gritty of like how vampire society functions and how families arrange themselves and, and you know and all that kind of stuff in the next book. In the first book, it's very touch and go because it's like mm, we are running and gunning. We're having a good time. We have to stop these, you know, cannibal school, school teachers. We got to go and uh, and fall in love along the way. The way that I conceive of vampires in this in this world. Is very much based on my own sort of internal feelings about gender and gender performance and sexuality. That like I call myself like a girl shaped person. Like woman doesn't mean anything to me. It's just one of those things. It's like an ill fitting suit. You know, it's like it's thrown on you and you're like, okay, whatever. I had a non binary character previously in a book series that I had planned called The Crashers. I had a character who's going to come to grips with you know their gender identity in the second book. The publisher shut down, everything fell into limbo, I I put the book out again myself, but then after everything happened, I just kind of like lost my taste for that world. So I would kind of had a a yearning for a while to like kind of dig into those ideas in tandem with like my own life stuff, but I'd left that sort of like on the back burner. And then with Dorian, like, you know, he is a non-binary vampire. Because he's are all non-binary. They don't understand binary gender. They don't understand any of these things. They don't exist. So I tend to call him genderqueer when I'm talking about him because that feels a little more specific to what he what he is and what he does. Dorian uses, you know, he, him pronouns, but that's more of like a linguistic residue of vampires learning English because they have their own languages and things that they, you know, people learn through certain systems. But the various vampire languages don't have binary pronouns, gendered pronouns, everything is their equivalent of they or they address everyone by by their name or direct address or whatever. So the fact that he has he him pronouns is just like they had to learn English and that's just what they picked up along the way. So he responds to he, you could call him whatever you want, he's going to respond to it. He feels most comfortable presenting as, as feminine, you know, a joke about him being you know, goth dipshit. You know, he's very concerned about like his, his eyeliner and his mascara and all the stuff and his nails make sure they're all like perfect. But part of it is like poverty, you know, being able to control his appearance helps him feel control of his life because so little is in his own control. Another part of it is that like, you know, he feels most comfortable when he feels the most feminine. And in the first book, he never comes out and says it. There's no conversation with Cash about it because, Cash is a, a cis gay man. He's a gay human, you know. He understands enough about vampires to know that he takes Dorian completely at face value because their entire culture has no concept of, of, of these things. They just they all navigate everything very fluidly and, you know, they don't have the same, like, hang-ups or concerns or anxieties. Like, Dorian is an anxious, anxious character, so he will always be anxious about his appearance, but again, that's like a... That's him controlling something for himself. But... Yeah, I I wanted to kind of wrestle with that a little bit in in the story where it's like, yeah, Cash is like a a very masculine man who dates very masculine men. And then Dorian shows up and it's like, oh, no, he's perfect and I love him and he's so beautiful. And I never wanted it to be like the source of a crisis for Cash that Dorian changes anything about him you know, his, his his attraction or his feelings about himself that, like, Dorian exists and then Cash exists. And now they exist together. And they are attracted to each other for the reasons that they are attracted to each other. You know, they, they complement each other. They get along really well. You know, they make fun of each other. They have fun together. And they happen to be very, very, like, attracted to each other. And I never, ever wanted that to be, like, a plot point or, like, Something that makes Cash doubt himself or becomes a teachable moment, you know, because like Dorian exists and Dorian will always exist as this. And it wouldn't occur to him to be self-conscious about those things, that he's not what gender he's performing or what sexuality he's supposed to model. It, It doesn't mean anything to him because it never meant anything to him culturally. And so then Cash just rolls along with it. And it was just kind of important to me in my own life and on the page just to be like, okay, these are all characters who take each other at face value. We're not going to have a crisis. We're not going to make it a thing. There's going to be no like gay panic. There's nothing, (laughs) you know. And I kind of want that to be the baseline of the world. And then to sort of head off any criticism, I guess, uh, because I understand that there is a, a longstanding history of like, non-binary or like agender characters or whatever um being aliens or robots or angels or etc cetera, etc cetera. and like and i know that it is problematic on like face value for the only non-binary character in the world thus far to be a monster you know a literal vampire but there's like two trans women and in, in two trans humans in book three and cash knows them and it's fine so
0: <laughs> also i feel like as an unbinary person, I think you can do whatever the fuck you want, and everybody should back up. Uh, agreed. But, okay. you know, but <laughs> so I'll Twitters. just, I'll help you fight. <laughs> <laughs> just tag yes. me in, tag me in next time. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you need it, but, mm-hmm. you know. Well, A, forgive me for any assumptions I made or, you know, I, I know I use the term woman and I, I apologize. No, um, no, no, that's totally fine, it's totally fine. No, no worries. No. I, you know, that's why we want to have the pod. We want to talk about these things. And, you know, I think it's, I, and I can't say for you, but I can say for me, sometimes when I create worlds, where someone being non-binary isn't even a conversation or being trans is mm-hmm. just a thing that happens and, and not always in societies that accept trans people, but sometimes just in trans people who accept one another. It it helps mm-hmm. me heal. It helps me feel a little bit safer in the world and, and more like hey, maybe I can give someone else permission to, to do the same for themselves and, and each other, right? Like, we deserve to have non-binary characters and God damn, there are a few of them. Mm-hmm. It's true.
2: And that's something that like, I really think about a lot in the world because it's a fantasy situation. You know, it's fantasy races, it's fantasy classes. You know, every monster has their own cultural norms and and things that are passed down and those are all like super regional so like a vampire in like obviously like louisiana uh which is like Dorian lives versus like someone in india completely different cultural norms and and things like that you know so like same with like the werewolves and, and this shifter and that shifter you know like they all have different relationships with these ideas and those ideas are impacted by the regional human cultures that they've been kind of forced to live alongside and assimilate into to some degree or another, obviously shapeshifters can just completely, you know, merge into human society and be taken as, as normal at face value. Um, and then you have like vampires and, and other like more beastly or monstrous looking sort of creatures um, who don't have that luxury and have to hide. And then even the hunters themselves are a completely insular class of people. Um, which we get way, way more into when we meet Cash's family in book 2, but, you know, these are, like, very insular, stateless communities of uh, hunting family dynasties, basically, that have their own norms and have their own rules and have their own cultures and and all of these things, and they all na- navigate ideas of, of, like, what is a man? What is a woman? What, what does any of this mean? Gender, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, and then within the context of, of monsters being hunted and not being like super, <laughs> having super high birth rates and being everywhere, they're not like humans. They're always going to be minorities and then vampires are minorities within minorities, you know, for lots of like world building uh, reasons that book two we'll get into some more. And so, you know, they're all basically fantasy classes and each of them have their own different specific ideas of gender and sexuality. And then because of that, they don't necessarily jive with what we expect from the larger dominant culture. So like cash growing up with like trans women who grew up to be hunters alongside him and everything like that's totally normal. These are things that just sort of happen. Like they have their own social pressures and things, but you know, they take each other at face value and then cash takes Dorian at face value. And they're, they're on the margins of the margins of, of society. You know, Dorian is a monster cash is a hunter and then they have this very insular little world together where they don't necessarily they navigate the stuff with cash's family and we will eventually meet dorian's family and it'll be a whole a whole thing i promise (laughs) i promise yes uh that was the big critique of of the first book people like i really wanted to know about dorian's family i'm like Everyone buckle in. That is the series plot. So (laughs) I'm not crazy. I name dropped everyone and ran. That's foreshadowing. And there's going to be conversations and, and negotiations and navigating all that really complicated stuff when it gets like family and vampire culture and hunting culture. But like ultimately, like they're not they don't feel a lot of the pressures that people in other, like, contemporary stories are going to, and I think most of us in our own daily lives feel, because, like, yeah, it's kind of like wish-fulfillment escapism, but, like, they are in this little world, in this little bubble, and they are so far removed from everyone else, and they don't, they're not going to worry about that. Like, Cash's mom is not going to be happy about Dorian, but it's because he's a vampire, and because he's taking her boy that's why she's gonna be upset. It's not about him being a, a boy vampire or any other kind of his gender expression. Like that doesn't that doesn't figure in. It's just the rules that they have to navigate really are not gonna be about sex or gender or anything like that, because they I, I just I really wanted this to kind of move away from the expectations of certain kinds of violence, let's say, in, in horror, in more action-heavy genres, in monster hunting fiction itself, getting back to supernatural. boy there's plenty of of those kind of things so maybe it's it's wish fulfillment and fantasy in my part but like i i like the idea of like them all being just like queer little weirdos on the fringes of the fringes just hanging out having a relationship and all that stuff and then the rest of it kind of be damned because they're not going to see it or feel it anyway and and maybe that's just okay you know, I, I maybe it's just me giving myself permission to be like, you know, I don't know if that's queer normative or not. It's just sort of a, a big old fuck you. <laughs> We're not even going to talk about it. They're just going to exist and we can all be happy for that. And that was that was kind of like my marching orders for myself with with the story and, and, and the idea of representation and queer normativity versus, you know, dealing with queer phobia or, or transphobia or homophobia, like any, any sort of phobias. Just Like, like you said. Yeah yeah, like you said, like creating safe spaces, I guess, and giving my, myself the permission to to have a safe space in this world. Because it is a nasty world. <laughs> Cannibal school teachers. Nasty yeah, world. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm cracking my knuckles and I'm like, can't I gotta get ready to write my Cash and Dorian fanfic. You know? <laughs> gotta get ready. This is beautiful. Thank you so much for for sharing about how the ideas came together and how you think about queerness and transness in that world how gender and sexuality appear in the vampire world, or don't, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Chef's kiss. So, yeah, I mean, we've been dancing around monster fuckers. Yes. Let's talk about monster fuckers, okay? A, right. Cash is both a monster hunter and a monster fucker. Yes, I he I want is. to hear more about that. And then why, why do you think queer people and trans people in particular are so drawn to monster fucking, monster fuckers, and monsters? All right, so...
2: Cash is one of those kind of like complicated things because, you know, I, I originally had <laughs> the original version of the story had a whole stable of monster ex boyfriends that I wanted to tackle. But like, as the plot, uh, the overarching plot of the series kind of coalesced, it was like, shit. He had like, he had so many boyfriends and where we whittled down to one that's the most plot relevant. Maybe one day it, in like some short stories, we'll see the others. But like, he had a werewolf biker boyfriend for a long time that, I still miss and I want to write more about him. So we'll, we'll see about the, the, mis- <laughs> the misadventures of Cassius Leroy, maybe at another time. But, um, cash is my critique slack slash response of, and to like Dean Winchester. It's pretty clear the flannel, the Texas accent, the sweater, the little flippy in the front bangs, you know, that's, that's just him. And like I said, I'm enamored with that Cass and, and Dean like situation. Um, and I, I wanted to reverse it where you have a human who's just so like impossibly love with a, with a very stupid and flawed like monster <laughs> and chases him around and, and makes him come to karaoke and tries to better him and all that stuff. You know, Cash is the consummate. I can fix him, but like not in a creepy way, like he, he, like in a loving way. For him, it's he's such a compassionate character again because I, I have strong feelings about the handling of Dean Winchester and the refusal to let him have feelings besides drunk and shooting and, and pushing everyone away so my critique is to have someone who just wears their heart on their sleeve to their own detriment and is so emotional and earnest and sincere and, and everything and that plays into like the idea of like how he perceives Dorian is like you know Dorian is just this he's so smart and he's so beautiful and he's just so capable and I love him and oh you know and it it seems like it would be a like conflicts of interest <laughs> to both hunt monsters but then also date monsters but in this sort of world like and again book two and book three we're going to get into more of that monsters are people too he has to work alongside monsters within the the law enforcement which character named billy who will learn more about and who become more pivotal as things go on um and work with like informants on the ground in these different communities and these are like his ins to these worlds and also you know hunters for better or for worse within monster communities like you live outside the bounds the the social contract is you get to live in secret if you behave yourself and if you become a problem if you become violent if you attack anybody then we send a hunter we don't even send the cops we don't send anything like we send hunters because there can be no justice there can be no due process and you can't go to prison because then you'll out all vampires or werewolves or whatever and this whole thing goes out the window so Like monsters will also use hunters to police their own communities when people step out of line. It's not unheard of to have like a a hunter scared straight situation, uh, you know, with with monsters who are posing a threat to the community or have done violent things or need to be taught a lesson. And sometimes, you know, monsters know to call a hunter in to do the business that they either can't or won't because of you know internal communal pressures and not being the, the guy who wants to like hold the bag at the end of that situation so you know he does already see monsters as complicated people and his innate sort of like sympathy and earnestness is like translates to like his attraction to dorian because it's like you know dorian's just dorian's dorian dorian's his best friend you know you they go in the car together and they hang out and they talk and they have a great time and dorian's the only one that understands him so yes he is a monster fucker uh <laughs> this is transition out of the love stuff and in the context of their relationship like it is yeah dorian being a vampire is a huge part of his attraction you know the claws and the fangs and the eyes that reflect light, you know, like like cat's eyes in the dark, you know, there's his reflexes, you know, his strength, his speed, his hissing at every, like, minor inconvenience, you know, the fact that he growls when he's mad about things. All of these things play into this, like, very bestial sort of, like, side of Dorian that Cash is very attracted to, uh, to sometimes to his own detriment. He can be a little handsy, um, and, and for him, it doesn't really cause any sort of conflict because he doesn't see least in his own head, like he doesn't see monsters as other. He sees them as people, just a different kind of people. And he understands that he occupies a certain distance from them and he can move among them, but he's not necessarily to be trusted. He doesn't expect them to trust him either. Um, So the fact that Dorian trusts him so easily is like another, you know, little notch on the uh, loving cash for life (laughs) thing. So, yeah, you know, he... Likes what he likes. He likes a little rough. likes uh, likes claws. likes fangs, and it doesn't cause any sort of dissonance for him because Dorian was a fully realized person already. I'm not sure if that makes sense to anyone but me. But that was sort of how I <laughs> came to the whole sort of the crux of their relationship from Cash's side is that like you know it is it, that that sort of like bestial nature is exciting. It is very different. It's something you know it taps into that like little subby side of his brain that is like yes please wear the velvet cape and step on me i love that dracula shit but yeah like i said i've had to cut back on some of his other uh monstrous romances in the past for the sake of brevity and and making coherent sense of the plot but um yes cash is a confirmed monster fucker for life the <laughs> <end>. <laughs> forever monster fucker
0: for life i love it yes so what about the 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 second part? Like, what do you think? Why why do queer and trans people? Why why do we love monster fuckers and monster fucking so much? Like, what what is it? I, I feel
2: like, and this is like this is like a me thing. I don't know if, if anyone else feels that way, but like I know for me, it's the allure of like the boundary violation because a monster is something completely other than yourself, and obviously like. The history of, like, myth and folklore and, like, literature and whatever, like, monsters and vampires and werewolves all represent different things, different social fears, different social ills, you know, vampire lesbians are coming for your virgins, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're very, very used to that stuff. But I, I'm, I'm constantly fascinated by the idea of the Boundary Cross as, like, a monster as being representative, not as... A rejected human or a cursed human, but like a a representation and an extension of like the natural world, like an offshoot of humanity, like just a part of our world that we don't have access to that has been hidden from us or that we have rejected in our own in our own histories, you know, and that that's something that we feel like a kinship with. It's like the rejected self, you know, it is part of nature. It is part of our world, but we've turned our back on it and i love the idea of like the, the boundary cross with the monster and the human relationship and the, the way that I, I like conceptualize it in my own work and, and the works i respond really well to is that like i love the idea of like the monster desiring the human but not as like a conquest or any of that stuff because that's another thing you know, that, that happens a lot but just like the the curiosity of something, uh, of the human being and other to the monster. And and that's why I have a lot of, like, monster protagonists. Like, you know, Dorian is, you know, technically, like, the the romantic lead of the the series, you know? And, you know, he is, you know, it's most of his, a lot of it is from his perspective. And so much of, like, his internal choices and and feelings and thoughts about things are going to drive the plot of the series, you know? And I like the idea of a monster who is, like, a fully embodied subject who is both, like, rejected the rejected human self obviously as part of our world part of nature and i just think that like at least in my brain like i I love the idea of of a fully embodied monster who can straddle that line between the natural world and the human world and can make informed choices about whether or not to love the human because to me yeah the monster may have teeth and claws but like there's always gonna be fewer monsters and humans you know whether it's like a something stalking the countryside, stealing goats or virgins or whatever, or you know, like a, an urban fantasy plotline like mine, where they are integrated into society to some extent or another. You know, their monsters will always be maligned; they will always be pushed to the the margins. And like, what is that negotiation of power between the human and the monster? The monster is like the embodied subject, you know, and it's like what does a monster gain from loving a human, you know? And it's sort of like that tension between like, if a monster is representative of a queer person, the maligned person, the rejected person, whatever, you know, like, are you loving the human? Are you loving, are you becoming, are you trying to integrate or assimilate, or are you taking someone at the margins and creating something together, you know? And that's, that's where I tend to go with my writing. Is it like, All of my characters in Southern Gothic, you know, Dorian and Cash, but also like my my standalone short stories and stuff is that like these are all people who are already on the margins. You know, these are already, you know, queer people on the margins and these are queer monsters on the margins. And like, do they try to join society or they do they turn their backs on it? And for me, it's like it's that tension between like, do you join society or do you reject it as someone who's been rejected by it? it plays into ideas of, like, ecology and religion and, like, dominant cultures and patriarchy and all that stuff. But, it, like, to me, it's that that tension between, I guess, the different domains, you know, the natural world, the human world, what can be gained, what can be lost, you know, your own sense of self, your own integrity, should you choose to pursue a human relationship. And that's something that I personally get into a lot with, uh, with Southern Gothic and with Dorian and Cash is, like, how they precisely navigate those margins, and who has power in those situations? Because even within their relationship, yes, Dorian could snap Cash in half, and he'd probably like it. But you know, he could snap Cash in half if he wanted to. That's what he can do. But he is also totally disempowered at all times because. He can't navigate society on his own. He can't drive. He can't do any of these things. He can't go into the human world and expect to be treated fairly or with respect or even you know, with anything. You know, he's a monster. And Cash is always aware that he has a, a certain level of privilege over Dorian because, you know, he can go into the vampire world and be respected as a hunter, but, you know, obviously Dorian can't come to the human world without like, wearing a hat and wearing you know covering himself and hiding his identity. So it's that... Tension—that's to me very true of just like being a person for you know, and obviously not always, but in in many ways, who is sort of relegated to a certain measure of marginalization. You know, I'm non-binary, and my girlfriend is non-binary. We're in a lesbian relationship, however you want to conceive of those things, and that's always going to be that's always going to put us at a certain level of distance from everyone else. So for me, it's 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 that constant negotiation with with yourself, with the other person with the world around you and that's and that sort of sense of like binary crossing or boundary crossing i mean that always kind of keeps me coming back to monsters and i don't know if that's how other people feel about it um i know that a lot of people in a lot of like popular criticism it's like you know you treated me like a monster so i became the monster i don't know if that's fine if that's how yeah that's how you feel like i always take monsters as like a natural state so i don't really care about like whether society rejected them or not, it's just kind of like, well, they Dorian exists and vampires exist and he exists as a vampire and will always exist as a vampire. And it, you know, he's just he's unfortunately subject to rules that he didn't agree to. But like I said, I, I know that that's sort of like the popular consensus for me. I'm just really interested in those like negotiations, I guess, and, and the different positions that you can occupy in that sort of dynamic. And yeah, that's me. So. <laughs>
0: No, I think that's all amazing. And you know, I've I've written a couple of different articles about uh, monster fucking and monsters and queerness and transness and where do we identify and 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 not with monsters and I I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of in those romantic monster fucking scenarios. Like what what are we playing with there? You gave me a lot to think about. I'm going to have to really like sit and like stare into the distance and go, hmm yes." A lot. So um, thank you so much. I was wondering if you could just tell us about what's coming up for you.
2: In the immediate future, as of this recording, um, my next novella will be out on September 30th. It is a um, sapphic Medusa in the modern day sort of retelling, recontextualization, I guess, (laughs) called In the Bedroom of Medusa. And that will be out, like I said, uh, in September I'm starting all the pre-orders now. It's available, it'll be available on Amazon and Kobo and Apple Books and wherever, you know, ebooks are sold. That's coming out very quickly. Uh, it's In production, I will hit all my deadlines, but, you know, every day is a, is a new adventure in the production of that one. I am working on a fucky Monster <laughs> um, short story collection. Um, I don't know. I don't have a title for that yet. It's going to cover various monsters and monster romances both you know horror monsters but also like mythological creatures and haunted houses and ghosts and minotaurs and werewolves and all sorts of things i'm already working on that i think though untitled i believe i should i want that out like next spring or summer i am always working on the next southern gothic book uh which is titled black diamond um i hope that that will be out in late 2022 or early 2023, depending on how production goes. But um yeah, I'm I'm always working on something, always cooking up some little monster fuckery for for the good people of Earth.
0: Beautiful. We will obviously be retweeting. We'll link to your sites and everything else. But why don't you let people know where they can find you on social and where they can find you online? All right, um,
2: I'm always always yelling on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at, at MeganCubes. For more general book news um, on Instagram is Cubed as well. You can find my website, uh, Megancubed.net. And um, for news, original fiction, um, little behind-the-scenes stuff, personal writing, essays, criticism, um, you can also follow my uh, newsletter, which is currently at Substack, but that is subject to change Uh, (laughs) based on what Substack decides to do. But for now, you can always find my newsletter at
1: makingcubed.substack.com. Woohoo! Awesome! I think that we were pretty uh, rough and tumble with our questions on this one. We were like, all right, so what do you think about this societal (laughs) issue that is sweeping? We're like, that you cannot be the only response for. (laughs) Megan, thank you for
0: joining us. Here is the hardest thing I've ever thought about go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like we both kind of did that. So I have no further questions, Your Honor. Um, (laughs) But it's been really fun to talk to you all, and it's been super, super fun. Just to get a little bit of insight, I love following you on Twitter, and I've been really, really loving the newsletters. So I highly recommend that people sign up for that. Really specifically, we didn't get into it here, but there was this great Umbrella Academy article that was connected to a lot of these personal and sometimes traumatic events in your life. And I think it was one of the best pieces of criticism I've read in a really long time. And it kind of caught me by surprise because... As I mentioned before we started recording, I I don't know that much about the Umbrella Academy. I believe I've read half of the comics, <laughs> maybe, and it was like a while ago. But yeah, I mean, it made me be like, wow, it's kind of not even about that, right? And like, sometimes the best criticism is like that, where you're just like, ostensibly, it's about this comic, but also it's about so many other things around that and why it was so important. So I loved it. And I highly recommend
2: All right, Well, thank you so much. That was uh, That was a very long essay that I spent many probably almost a year writing uh i think maybe two years um so yeah i'm really glad that it has resonated with people that was one of my most personal pieces of of writing that i've ever put on the internet besides my that's basically the sequel to like my hannibal essay which is the exact same let's talk about trauma and also a tv show kind of kind of framework um, right but yeah i that one i i'm super glad that you know, people responded to it that it's meant something. Um, so, yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for reading it. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a blast talking about um, all the many uh, complicated issues of society, and I'm glad to have the last word on all of it. So. Perfect, solved,
1: <laughs> solved. What I'm saying
0: is, we solved it all. So. <laughs> Uh, No, Megan, you've been absolutely delightful. Thank you for making us think really hard. I'm going to, yeah, like I said, go stare into space for a while and go, oh my, that is a good point. Um, So thank you for your time. Thank you for writing beautiful, beautiful queer characters that we can love with our whole hearts and souls. I'm so excited to dive deeper into your worlds that you're building. And um, yeah, Sarah, you're the best as always. Listeners, we couldn't be here without you. Of course, you know the joke, but I'm still going to say it. We could, but it'd be really awkward if we were so thank you all so much Kate who's editing this I love you you're the best Uh, Kyoko who was meowing in the background thank you for your efforts
1: (laughs) oh no 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 she ate she's out uh don't worry like I, (laughs) I found like a box of cat food that I had like snuck under the table somehow like and I just totally forgot about it she came up and I was like oh you probably want food so yeah no she's passed all the way out so don't even bother saying anything to her she is gone Dead to the world right now. Well, good night, Kyoko.
0: We love you, Kyoko, Sarah's (laughs) kitten, if you didn't know, listeners. Thank you all so much. Always a pleasure to be here with Bitches on Comics, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture as you might have guessed you can follow us on twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics and on instagram at, at @bitchesoncomics our website is brace yourself bitchesoncomics.com if you go there you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs i don't remember what it is i am in charge of updating the website however so
1: good luck thanks for the heads up i'll go to this website now if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those.
0: I'm SE Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at seflenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore flenor.
1: Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize
0: the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey everyone, I'm Noah Daniels, one of the hosts of the Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories podcast, and I want to introduce you to the perfect podcast to get you through spooky season. Find out what happens when three skeptics who want to believe in the paranormal interview people about their horrifying experiences. Again, that's the Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories podcast. Now on to the trailer. I've been warned to not tell this story, but I think because of the way it ends, it's okay to tell this story because some people say that with certain entities to like speak of them or talk about them or in any way portray them as powerful will attract them to other people the creepiest thing about it to me is a lot of times it would wait for me to notice it it would just lay its arm out like this and then i'd be like where is it where is it and then i'd see it and then it would just slither back make sure you hear the rest of that episode it's called devin's demons again that's the real hauntings real ghost stories podcast available every monday everywhere you can download podcasts